Proverbs 17, and we'll pick up today in verse 15. Proverbs 17, we'll pick up in verse 15, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. There it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? A friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for adversity. A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. He who loves transgression loves strife. He who raises his door seeks destruction. He who has a crooked mind finds no good, and he who is perverted in his language falls into evil. He who sires a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the way of justice. Wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her who bore him. It is also not good to find the righteous, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask, Lord, for you to impart to us, Lord, your wisdom, Lord, that we would uh, have understanding, Lord, that we would have our minds and our eyes fixed on heaven above, where Christ is there seated at your right hand, and that, Lord, we would not be like the fool, whose eyes are set upon the ends of the earth, who are preoccupied and consumed with this present world, Lord, to the neglect of their soul and to the neglect of salvation and the life to come. So, Lord, teach us, Lord, of this way of righteousness, Lord, to make a distinction between good and evil, and, Lord, to be able to properly discern what is pleasing in your sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There, we begin in verse 15. Here are two sides of the same coin. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous. Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. All right, both of these are perversions to justice, to righteousness, to truth, and to judgment. Whether it be the wicked person being justified or being exonerated or vindicated. When a wicked man is praised because of his wickedness, this is an abomination to God. And then when a righteous man is condemned, this also is an abomination to the Lord. Because both of them are a perversion of justice, and justice is ultimately founded upon the very law of God, the wisdom of God, the very truthfulness of God. And so we should not do this. This means that we need to understand the difference between wickedness and righteousness, and then we need to pronounce a proper judgment, the judgment of God concerning wickedness, and the judgment of God concerning the way of righteousness. We know from Romans chapter 13, verses 3 to 4, that the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, right? They are a rewarder of good, and they are a punisher of evil. 
This is what the ruling authorities are supposed to do. And anyone in a position of authority who needs to make judgments concerning this behavior or that behavior, concerning this person or that person, whether that be the civil authorities or whether that be the church authorities, right, who are there to determine and discern what is good and right, we need to do so according to the word of God. And whenever there is a perversion of these things, it is an abomination to God because it is a subversion of his justice and righteousness. Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. says, If there is a dispute between men and they go to court, and the judge decides their case, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Then it shall be that if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. There, in a proper situation, when the courts, when the judgment is being properly determined, the righteous man is justified and the wicked man is condemned. These two men go to the judge, and the judge makes a proper discernment. He exonerates the righteous man, justifies him, commends him, but the wicked man is punished, right? He is here beaten in this way, and this is the way it should be. And when that is not the case, and many times this is how it will be on this earth, because justice is perverted in many ways, because those judges that are in place to execute justice according to the will of God are themselves corrupt people, and so they will not do it perfectly. The best example of this would be Jesus and Barabbas. Jesus and Barabbas. He who justifies the wicked, they justified Barabbas. They wanted released a man that was worthy of death in condemning the righteous, and who did they condemn? They condemned our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then he was put to death. This is an abomination to God for this to happen. Verse 16. Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom? Many fools who have money will use their money to purchase things that are necessary in order to obtain wisdom of all sorts, whether that be natural wisdom, right, wisdom that is natural or common in this world, or whether that be the spiritual wisdom found in the Word of God. There are many foolish people who use money and who actually purchase Bibles, and they have Bibles in their homes. And yet, do those Bibles do them any good? They do them no good at all. And so it is an enigma, right? It is something that brings consternation to him, is that the fool has money in his hand in order to purchase wisdom, in order to obtain those things that are necessary to gain wisdom, but he has no sense. So no matter how many books he buys, no matter how many theology books, no matter how many Bibles he owns, he will never gain wisdom from those things, even though he spends his resources to gain it. And this is a very contradictory, a very foolish thing that happens in this present world. Wisdom is not fitting to a fool, nor are those things that obtain wisdom fitting to them. And yet many foolish people buy them, obtain them, they purchase them with a price. Verse 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, at all times, not just during the good times, not just 
during prosperity, not just when you are able to be beneficial to him. But he loves at all times, and here specifically all times means even during the day of adversity. When that person is undergoing a severe trial, a harsh trial, a severe time of persecution, even a friend then, when it is not expedient and not beneficial to him to maintain this relationship, he maintains it because he is a true friend. And he loves at all times, and his love is not based upon the condition, the situation that his friend finds himself in. But rather, it's based upon the fact that he is his friend. He is his brother. He loves him regardless of what he can do for him, right? Even during times of adversity. Now, one who learned this experience the hard way, that there were not very many good friends out there, is Job. Job 19. Job 19, Job complains because all of his friends and his family and those who used to be associated with him, whenever he had lots of money, now where are they at? They're nowhere to be found. Yes, they turn away from him. Job nineteen thirteen. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me, and those I love have turned against me. Here, this is sadly the common experience. What you will find in this present world is that there are very few who are true friends right, who love at all times and who are born for the day of adversity. And Job learned this full well. He had many friends, many associates, many servants. Everyone spoke highly of him. Everyone loved him and praised him when he was the richest man in the world. But whenever all that was gone and he was struck with severe adversity, all those friends, even his own family, they all turned on him and wanted nothing to do with him anymore. But we shouldn't be like this. Our friendship and our love for one another should not be based upon what the person can do for us. And it should not be based upon their situation of blessing or their situation of being under a curse or under some uh, extreme affliction from the Lord. And we know from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, 33 and 34, that there the church is commended because whenever their brothers were being thrown into prison in undergoing a severe affliction, they did not disassociate with them, but they had compassion on them, even though that led to them being plundered of their own property. And this shows that they were true friends who loved at all times, and a brother born for adversity. Now, ultimately, the ultimate brother born for adversity is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Who is our elder brother and who literally was born for our adversity, right? He underwent adversity for us, right? And he loves us at all times, and he bore our sins and associated with our miseries in order to redeem us from our sin. Verse 18, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. Here, lacking in sense, a man who has no sense gives himself as a pledge right, for another person, for his neighbor. 
he puts up himself as collateral or puts up his property as collateral as a pledge for the sake of another person. So that if this other person fails to pay their debt, who does the creditor come for? It comes for you. Well, he says a person that does this is lacking in sense, that we should not stake our financial security in the stability of our families upon another man's trustworthiness and upon their ability to pay back their own debts. So if you are lacking in sense, he says, this is what you will do. But if you have good sense, then you're not going to do such things because it is a heavy burden equated to slavery in the Bible, right, to be uh, beholden to the, to the lender. It's a slavery to do that for yourself. How much more so to do it for the sake of another? So we shouldn't be doing that. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of a fowler. There, if you have done this, he says, do whatever is necessary. Give yourself no sleep, no rest until you are freed from this debt and from this obligation. And then don't do it again. Right? Don't. That's the obvious solution. The obvious implication is do whatever is necessary to free yourself from this and then do not do it again. Verse 19. He who loves transgression loves strife. He who raises his door seeks destruction. A person who loves transgression, who loves evil, also loves strife. Right? Sin and strife are one in the same. They are synonymous, right? These things always go together. When there is transgression, naturally there is going to be enmity, there's going to be strife. Ultimately, strife between that man and God, right? Enmity between God and that man, but also enmity with many other people as well. Because sin breeds quarrels, disputes, wranglings, all this type of infighting, strife, contention. This is what happens when there is transgression, especially when the transgression is with anger, jealousy, fits of rage, these types of sins, right, that are interpersonal, one between another, cause much strife in the church, in the home, at the workplace, wherever it is, there's constant strife with these kinds of people. And then the one who raises his door seeks destruction. Here the door, I think, is being used as a metaphor for the mouth, for the mouth. When the door is opened, there is destruction. When the door is closed, there is no destruction because these contentious people, their strife and contention is spread abroad, typically through what instrument of the body? Usually through the tongue, through the mouth. So when the door of the mouth is open and the tongue is given free reign, then there is nothing but strife, misery, contention, fighting with these people. But if the mouth is constrained and it is kept closed, then there is no strife because there are not the words that lead to the constant bickering and fighting. 2 Timothy chapter 2 describes such people. 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. Second Timothy 2, 23. 
says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. The bondservant of the Lord must not be a quarrelsome man, but rather kind, patient, gentle in the way that he deals with the people that he serves, which sounds very familiar to what we read this morning from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the way that we should exercise ourselves toward one another, so that there's not constant friction and strife and quarreling and contention, contention among the people of God, but there's peace and harmony and gentleness and kindness one toward another. And especially to be careful with our tongue, as it is the member that is most prone to produce contention and strife in the home and in the body of Christ. Verse 20, he who has a crooked mind finds no good, and he who is perverted in his language falls into evil, right? A crooked mind, one whose mind is crooked, in that it's his mind is dwelling on and thinking upon all the evil things that he wants to commit. And then a person that has a crooked mind will find no good. There is no good, no favor, no blessing from the Lord in pursuing those crooked uh, fan, uh, fantasies that are found there in his mind. And then when a man has a crooked mind, what about his language? What about his tongue? It's going to be crooked as well. It's going to be a perverted language, and this will lead him to fall into much evil. He will not have favor with God, nor will he have favor with man, right? In no way will he know the goodness of God and the blessing of the Lord. James chapter 3, James chapter 3, verse 6 says, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and set on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The tongue defiles the entire body, right? When there is perversion in the tongue. This is what happens and this is why it leads to evil. Verse 21, he who sires a fool does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Here a foolish son who practices sin brings much hardship, much sorrow upon his parents because of his wayward actions, because of the various things that he does. Now this siring of a fool certainly is speaking of of, of having a child that becomes this, right? That grows into a very foolish man. However, many times the reason the child becomes a fool is because of the influence of the father or the influence of the mother. Now, certainly, then we should not have any part to do with that. Now, if we raise our children in truth and righteousness and they turn away from that, such as Esau, such as Ishmael, such as Absalom, Right, Those who had godly parents and were raised in truth and righteousness, but they rejected and turned away from what they were taught and what they knew to be true, and then they pursued wickedness and evil and foolishness, then that also brings great sorrow upon the parents, right? upon both the father and the mother. Didn't David experience great sorrow because of the acts of Solomon? Or not Solomon, but of Absalom? 
the things that Absalom did brought great sorrow, heartache to David. His kingdom was almost torn apart. His concubines were defiled in public daylight, his son doing these things, right? And then his son was put to death. He died a miserable death, and that brought great sorrow to him, right? So there was great sorrow because one of his sons was a foolish man. And then there's no ability to have joy in them, right? Who wants to have joy because their child is in prison, because their child is a deadbeat, because their child is an immoral person, right? No one has joy in those things. It brings sorrow and hardship. And then typically those children like that, they're leeches, right? They leech upon their parents all the days of their life. And instead of being a help to their parents in their old age, the parents are having to help them in their old age. I've known parents who in their uh, you know, 70s and even in their 80s were having to raise their grandchildren and great-grandchildren because their children were worthless and of no account and did nothing but have children and then squander them. And so the grandparents were having to pick up this responsibility. When they're old, right, they don't have the ability to pick these kids up and run around with them all the time, keep up with them because, you know, you get older and that's the parents' job. It's just the job of the grandparents to play with them, to spoil them, right? To send them home, not to raise them in that way. And yet, what happens many times? When there is a foolish son or daughter, all that weight and burden comes there upon the parents. And then it brings sorrow to them, right? There's not the joy that should be there, the rejoicing in the children as they grow up and become responsible and especially if they're practicing righteousness, then it brings great joy and honor to the parents. An example of this would be Esau. We know that Esau, he made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah because of the Hittite women. The immoral women that he married made their life miserable because he was a foolish son. Verse 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. A joyful heart, right? When we have joy in our heart, when things are going well, when we hear good news, right? And there's joy within us and our countenance is lifted up, it brings healing to our whole body. But when there is a broken spirit, when we're sorrowful, when there's some bad news or something that happens to us that brings despair upon us, it affects our whole body. Many times we can even become sick. Right? Our immune system begins to fail because of stress-related issues or because of sorrow. So when there is joy and happiness, it is uplifting not only to our souls, not only to our hearts, but even to our whole body. Our whole body is affected in a positive way because of this. And whenever there is sorrow, then it also affects our entire body as well in this negative way. Now, some of this is unavoidable because life does consist of seasons of joy, and there are seasons of sorrow, right? This is certainly the case. However, there are those people who are of a sour disposition and who create sorrow upon sorrow because of their sour attitude and because of the way that they live, because they have no enjoyment in life. They can have no enjoyment because they're constantly criticizing and looking at everything in the most negative, condescending light possible. Now, in that regard, we shouldn't do that. We should enjoy life, and we should look at the many blessings that God has given to us and find comfort in those things. And when we do, it will be refreshing to our body. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We do know that there are 
people that are just miserable. They're miserable people all the time. Nothing will ever make them happy. You could give them a plate of strawberries, and they're not going to be happy, right? Or, or a, a pile of money, and they're, they're going to find something to criticize or to be negative about everything possible. Right? That's not good for anyone, for themselves or anyone else. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life in which God has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Yes, life is fleeting. And yes, there is laborsome toil under the sun. There are afflictions that are associated with this life because of sin. However, in the kindness and mercy of God, he has also granted that there are things that we enjoy and things that we take pleasure in. One of them here being enjoying life with the woman that you love, with the wife of your youth. Having and finding comfort and happiness in these relationships, doing things and spending time together and having joy as a result of those things. Eating your bread in happiness, drinking your wine with a cheerful heart instead of complaining and saying, well, I only have bread. I wish I had some meat. Although I do wish I had some meat, right? Everyone wants a little meat on the side as well. But instead of carping and criticizing and complaining and being sour about all that, be grateful to God, be thankful, be cheerful over those types of things. And it's good for us to be so. It's healing to our body, right? It provides refreshment for us in that way. Verse 23, a wicked man receives a bride from the bosom to pervert the way of justice. A wicked man receives a bribe. Here, we're not talking about the one that gives a bribe. The one who gives a bribe is the one that has it in his bosom. The wicked man receives it from the bosom of another. In this case, both parties are at fault. Both of them are wicked men. The one who gives the bribe is wicked, but no bribe can be given unless there is a recipient on the other end. The one that receives it also is a wicked man because he has been appointed by God to practice justice, right? We're assuming here that the bribe is taking place with the police officer, with the judge, with the official, whoever it is, whose job is to enforce or to enact the law, the justice of the land in one way or another. And that justice is perverted whenever he receives a bribe. Whenever someone gives that man money so that he turns a blind eye to what is happening there, that man is responsible. He is a wicked man because he is receiving money and then he's failing to do what God has called him to do. God has given him that position. He is a minister of God for this purpose. But whenever he fails to do it for the sake of money, then he's a very wicked man. And we're reminded in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, right? All kinds of evil. All types of things are perverted through the love of money. And here, it is the wicked man who receives a bribe from the bosom in order to pervert justice. And we shouldn't do that. But rather, we should not be partial in our judgment against the rich or against the poor, against the great or against the small. But with righteousness, we should judge 
everyone in the proper way and not be corrupted for the sake of sordid gain, for the sake of money. Verse 24, wisdom is in the presence of the one who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. Wisdom is before the wise, the one who has understanding. The wisdom of God is before his eyes. He fixes his eyes on the things of God. He's constantly immersing himself in the word of God because it reveals to him heavenly, eternal truths, things related to the life to come. He has wisdom, and therefore he sets it before himself, and then he gains more wisdom and more understanding. It leads him and guides him throughout his life. In contrast, the fool, he fixes his eyes on the end of the world. His eyes are only fixed on this present life, on this present world. He's not thinking about the world to come. He's not thinking about what is going to happen after his death. He's only consumed with this present world and how he can enjoy this life and enjoy all the pleasures associated with this life. His mind is fixed on worldly things only, and he gives no thought to the life to come. It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. These are the things that consumes the foolish man to his own condemnation, because he will find out the hard way that there is more to life than what you eat, and that life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing, and that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There is a life to come, and we will stand before God and give an account. And the fool doesn't consider these things. He's only concerned with having a good time, having a good time in this life. Philippians 3, verses 17 to 21, says, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. There the worldly men set their minds on earthly things. But where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. So where is our mind fixed? On heavenly things, on where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and we're eagerly waiting for him. How can we be eagerly waiting for him if we're not thinking about him, if we're not meditating upon him, if our eyes are not fixed upon him? Right, of course this is the case. And this is the contrast here displayed between the two. Verse 25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Here, this is the same as we read in verse 21, that he is reiterating how evil it is, how horrible it is to have a foolish son. Now, when it says foolish son, it also assumes foolish daughters as well, because a foolish daughter can also bring great bring great bring great grief upon her father and upon her mother. Whatever child, male or female, and only male or female, because there are no other genders, only male or female, they can bring great grief upon their father and mother if they live a foolish life. 
But in contrast to that, Proverbs 10.1, a wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. The wise son or wise daughter makes father and mother glad. The foolish son or foolish daughter make them sad. So why would we want to make our parents sad? Let's make them happy, right? Make them happy by living a godly life. 26, it is also not good to find the righteous, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Right? Evildoers, they're the ones who should be fined. They're the ones who should be struck, right? They should receive a beating, as we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Evildoers, but not the righteous, not the noble, not those who are doing good who are living a godly and a righteous life. This is, again, as Romans 13 says, the ruling authorities are a terror to bad conduct, not to good conduct. They are to reward the good, and they are to punish the evil. But when the authorities who have been given this charge from God, they have been given authority by God to execute justice on the earth, by rewarding the good and punishing the bad, when they use that authority to reward evil and to punish good, then it is a very miserable state, right? You see then that the entire society is crumbling, it is imploding, and it is about to fall apart. It is a very evil thing. And we find in our own day that this is often the case, right? That... Somebody, I can't remember who was talking about this morning, we were talking about um, some swimmers, some swimmers, and there in the locker room is a man in the girls' locker room. And who got in trouble for complaining about that? The girls did, right? Because they didn't want to share a locker room with a man. And yet they were punished because, because of this. Now, In any sane society, should men be allowed into women's locker rooms? Should they be allowed to change and to do those? No, of course not. That guy should be taken out and beaten, right? 25, Deuteronomy 25, 1, with no more than 40 beats, okay? You might even extend that a few for for this guy of such a perversion, right? That's the way it should be in society. No sane person would ever look at that and say that this is good and fitting to allow this to happen. And yet now, here in our own society, those who oppose that, who speak out against it, they're the ones being punished, and everything is deferred to the one who's practicing this gross immorality. And in many such ways, this happens. And this has been the case since the very beginning of time. Wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to practice idolatry? You should not be punished for, pra- for refusing to practice idolatry. And yet, there they found themselves bound and cast into a fiery furnace because they practice righteousness. And here the Bible says it, this is not a good thing. It is not good, it is not right for this to happen. And we should pray and desire that God would grant to us authorities, rulers in our own land, who would have some measure of civil righteousness so that they are putting into place laws that are consistent with a standard of righteousness that rewards those who do good and who punishes those who do evil.
This is what we should desire and pray because it's not good for us and it's not good for the Christian church. It's not good for the preaching of the gospel. It's not good even for the common goodness of mankind for there to be a perversion of justice in this way. Verse 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips... He is considered prudent. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It says in James chapter 1, verse 19, a person who restrains his words has knowledge. This is evidence that this person has the spirit, that self-control. He's practicing self-control because the hardest member of our body to control is the tongue, is the tongue. In one who is able to restrain his words, shows he has knowledge, he has understanding, he understands some basic principles of the wisdom of God. Because the Bible reminds us repeatedly of the danger of our words and the need to show restraint and self-control and the damage that we can do if we let our tongues loose. So a person who has learned to restrain his words and his tongue is someone who has knowledge. And a cool spirit is a man of understanding. When a person has a cool spirit, meaning his temper is not enraged, whenever he is slighted, whenever someone offends him, right, don't we feel, uh, you know, we'll say our, my blood was boiling, right? You can feel the temperature rising, right, right up through your head and your face gets red and you want to explode. And then when we explode, what happens? What gives free reign to our mouth, our lips, and we say all sorts of stupid things, things that we would not normally say, and many things that are perverse, contrary to truth, contrary to love. Maybe even people start cursing and swearing, doing those kinds of things that they don't normally naturally do. Well, if we have a cool spirit, then we also have self-control over our passions. We control our passions, which also gives us control over our tongue. And this is evidence of wisdom, of understanding, of the work of the Spirit, of progress in godliness and in righteousness. Then verse 25, how important is it? Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, is considered prudent. Even a fool, even a person who in many other areas is foolish, has no wisdom, no understanding, but if in this one area they're able to show some restraint and they keep their mouth shut, people will consider that this person has some virtue to him. This person has some wisdom. He has some prudence to him, even though in many other areas of life, he has no appearance of wisdom. In this one area, he proves himself to be very wise. And people will have a favorable opinion of this man, that he must be a wise man because he has restraint. Well, if that is true of a fool who keeps his mouth shut, then how much more true should it be of the children of God? who have the wisdom of God, who are the wisdom of God in Christ, that if we are able to restrain our tongues and keep our tempers and our passions under control, then we will be considered wise. This is our wisdom. It is wisdom for us to live in this way and to be very careful about what we speak or what we say and how we say it. We shouldn't just blab all the time and say whatever comes to our mind. Many people think that's a virtue. I just say whatever comes to my mind. 
That's not a virtue. That is not a virtue. That's the opposite of virtue according to the Bible, right? You should not, we should not do that, but rather we should be very guarded and very careful in the things that we say. And we have a perfect example of this. Again, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is for us the perfect example of how to live a godly life. 1 Peter chapter 1. I mean, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. They are typically, when we are reviled, what is our natural impulse? What does the flesh want to do? It wants to revile in return, right? When we're suffering, we want to utter threats, start cursing them, say all these things that are going to happen to them. But what did Jesus do? He had a cool spirit and he had restraint on his mouth. He did not revile in return. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And then God delivered him. And this will be our wisdom as well, to live and to practice the very wisdom seen in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then let's commit ourselves to walking in this pathway of proving ourselves to be children of God and to be the very wisdom of God. And let's begin by keeping restraint on our tongue and keeping restraint on our passion. And if you're children, live a godly life, right? So that you won't be the derision of your parents, but instead will bring great gladness to them, joy throughout the course of their life. Well, let's pray and then we will be dismissed. And I'm going to ask Mr. Michael, would you mind praying for us today?